This morning is September 16th. It is 2007. Our message this morning is Krav Maga. That's two Hebrew words. Krav meaning combat. Maga meaning contact. This is the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, special method of martial arts. Now, the Koreans have karate and the Chinese kung fu and the Japanese judo. Well, the Israelis have developed a lethal fighting system. And it's different than anybody's in the world. In fact, we send our terrorist training coordinators to Israel to be trained by them. Let me read you a description of it. Krav Maga is a self-defense and military hand-to-hand combat system developed in Israel which assumes no quarters and emphasizes maximum threat neutralization in real-life contacts. Context. Can't speak today. In other words, it doesn't take place in the dojo. It doesn't take place in the safety of a gym or an Olympic arena. In fact, this sport will never be added to the Olympics because it is not a sport. They train in situations with fog machines so that you cannot see well. They train in situations with loud, disruptive noise. And it is almost always against multiple opponents. Because every day when Israelis storm into buildings in terrorist situations, they don't know what they'll face. The whole fighting principle moves around one continuous principle called Retzev, continuous combat. It means always moving, always fighting. No flamboyant Jean-Claude Van Damme type kicks. No beautiful Bruce Lee squeals and moves. It is all about immediate, sudden contact and never moving away from that. And as I began to think about that, a similar principle exists in the kingdom. It's found in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Always moving, always fighting. Be joyful always. How often are we joyful? Always. Always. Pray continually. How often do we pray? Joyful always. Prayer continually. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In Israel, if you are a soldier or you are a policeman, this is taught to every soldier and every policeman because it is necessary for their survival. They need to know that in every situation they always have to be mindful in any arena that they could be outnumbered and constantly in continual combat. The Christian life is absolutely no different. We are called to be a remnant of believers. A remnant is not a majority. So if we're in a country where everybody claims to be a Christian, we know somebody is. How about that? A remnant is a small group within a larger group. We know that we will be outnumbered. Our battlefield is not the four walls of a church. That would be like a dojo or an Olympic arena. There are no rules in our combat. But we do not fight as the world fights. The Bible teaches us that something else is our strength. It says, be joyful always. Pray continually. Judah, what does Nehemiah 8.10 say? The joy of the Lord is our strength. We're to be joyful always. We're to pray continually because the Bible teaches us, 
Like an Israeli soldier is taught continuous combat techniques, the Bible teaches us that joy for us is our very strength. This is the thing that causes us to prevail. This is the thing that the enemy tries to squelter. If I asked you what the biggest battle you've ever faced in your life is, you might say it was cancer. You might say that it was the loss of a loved one or something like that. I tell you the most common battle that any Christian ever faces is the struggle to be joyful in all situations. This pastor preaches straight out of his own weakness. And I've learned that there's kind of a neutral mode in me. I can be very joyful, maybe even obnoxiously so. Don't say amen. (laughs) And I'm rarely just totally hacked off. That's a nice way to say it, huh, Adam? That meets everybody's approval. But I allow myself to retreat from true biblical joy into what I think is a survival mode. Just kind of numb to what's going on around me. Phlegmatic, if you will. Not moved one way or another. This is not what God has for us. The Bible says more than 69 times. You hearing me, saints? Cody, how many times? More than 69 times, do not be afraid. Why do you think the Bible tells us that? Because we are plagued with fear that steals our joy. Let me give you a great example. You wake up in the morning and it's beautiful and there is sunshine on the horizon and a slight cool front has come in. Morning like much like today, right? And you're going about your day and you're excited and the birds are singing and all is right with the world. And then a thought, maybe even some would call it a fiery dart, hits you. I don't know how I'm going to pay my electric bill. What begins to happen to your joy? It's funny. It it looked once like a vibrant grape ready to make wine and now it looks more like a, a raisin. It's still there. I still have joy. I still have the joy of the Lord. It's just not as painfully evident. We need to learn how to fight how to maintain our joy. One of the first things Jesus said when He rose from the dead was be of good cheer. A really weird English way to say, get happy. How about that? Turn with me to Leviticus 14. Now don't prepare to sleep because I'm reading to you from the Old Testament. There's nothing old about it. The new is not new and improved. It's one contiguous revelation. 66 books that tell us about one God. Not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. One God. Yes, ma'am. Fourteen. Hey, isn't it great? My family is here today. It has occurred to me as I stand here and am speaking to you and see their smiling faces, this is the first time in about ten years all of us have been in one church building. And it's not a funeral and it's not a wedding. That's an accomplishment. And it's all because God is doing beautiful things in our lives. I'm thankful for that. Now, when you look at them and you see strawberry, 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 and then pine cone, you'll wonder you wonder how I could be cut out of the same rock as these beautiful people. The Lord works in amazing ways, is all I can tell you. My little nieces are here. They're smiling faces. And I'm excited because I know that the key to their success in life is learning to maintain the joy that God gives them. Joy will make you attractive when you don't feel attractive. Joy will make you successful when you didn't feel very successful. And joy will carry you through any situation that life brings your way. You all in Leviticus 14? 
Now, I'm going to cheat here a little bit. As a pastor, I, I have the right to do this, and like I said, Adam's guarding the door. We're going to talk about joy today, but I'm going to digress for a moment. Does that surprise you? At least it's planned, right? I'm not really chasing rabbits. I just can't turn to Leviticus 14 and skip over this. So we're going to get to the 12th verse, but I want to tell you something that occurs in the others first. Leviticus 14.1 The Lord said to Moshe, Moshe is the way to say Moses, wouldn't you be upset if somebody read the story of your life and changed all of the names of the people in your family to better suit their taste? Changed Johannan to John, you know? How about Eric suddenly became some other name that's not recognizable to you? Enrique, yeah. In fact, what if that went on for 2,000 years so when you read the story about your people, your Messiah, your promises, your covenants, it didn't look like yours anymore. It looked like somebody else's. Could that upset you? We're Western people reading an Eastern book. Every once in a while, it's a good idea to remind yourselves of that. We are the unnatural branches grafted into their promises. If this story took place in Japan, the names would be Japanese. And because we'd have a hard time pronouncing them, we would do what we did to the Hebrew names. We would Americanize them. But that doesn't change who they were. So remember that. The Lord said to Moshe, These are the regulations for the diseased person at the time of his ceremonial cleansing when he is brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine him. If the person has been healed of his infectious skin disease, the priest shall order that two live clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the one to be cleansed. What we have is a situation in a civic law, a constitution for a nation that says you're going to get sick. Now, I know in certain church settings it's taught you just don't receive that. Too late, it's already landed. And the Bible knew that would happen. The Bible teaches us that there are things that we do when we are sick. It does not teach that we never get sick. That's a perversion of the truth. And the sad thing is, while it gives hope to one, it heaps condemnation on someone else. Very sad. The priest shall order that two live clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the one to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the infectious disease and pronounce him clean. Then he is to release the live bird into the open fields. So often when we're reading something, we don't understand the significance of the details until something happens and it later awakens us. Have you ever read a book and the author painfully describes someone's background early on? And you're like, I don't care. Would you just get to the point? Only to find out four chapters later it was important that guy was a physician and grew up with an abusive father or whatever is the case. The Bible goes through painstaking detail for us to understand something. There will be sick people among the people of God. And then lays out for you a ritual that when someone has been healed, cleansed by God, a testimony that is supposed to happen. These are skin diseases. This is speaking of leprosy, but there is a problem. Naaman, healed of leprosy. What country is he from? 
He's a Syrian. He's not an Israeli. So he doesn't qualify for this. Miriam, healed by God of leprosy at Moses' request. Right? But the nation hasn't been formed. We haven't received the laws from the mountain. We don't have the book of Leviticus yet. So there is no testimony for this. In fact, Israel carries on for 1,600 years from Sinai right up until the, what we now call the first century when a rabbi named Yeshua, who is declared to be the Hamashiach, the Messiah of the Jewish people, showed up. And this is the first time in Israel's history as a nation that somebody is healed of leprosy. You remember what Jesus said to them? He said, go show yourself to the priest. Why? Is that just filler? I wonder, is it just filler? It turns out that the Jewish people expecting God to heal and expecting God to move and loving Him and knowing that they were His belonging had set up for themselves certain thoughts. We know God can heal. He does it among us. But since God told us this and we've never seen anybody healed of leprosy, there must be someone special who is going to come and do this. And so the saying grew in Israel, when Messiah comes, then we will see our lepers healed. How many did Jesus heal? Ten at one time? Hmm. Mark 2.6 records the Pharisees' thoughts. Could this be the Messiah? Because it had been thought only Messiah could do that. And what would you see in Israel for the first time in 1,600 years. A live bird covered in the blood of another with a scarlet cord and a piece of wood hanging off of him flying around. A testimony. A strange testimony. Can you imagine having to explain to your kids, why is that dove suddenly red and got a little piece of wood? What's going on there? Something's happened. There is a monumentous event. Our parents have told us about it. We've memorized it. We've read it. But we've never seen it. Messiah must have come. In fact, there were four specific miracles. The Pharisees had developed a system. They didn't want to be fooled when Messiah came. So they had a system for verification. They first, and they draw this from Leviticus 8 and Leviticus 14, they first want to establish that a person had truly been sick. So you might talk to their parents. You see something like that occurring in John 9 with the man born blind. Then... They would want to find out that they had truly been healed. So they would talk to that person. Only then, after silent observation, would they go and approach the person who was supposed to have done it. You can look carefully in the Gospels and see that. Here are four miracles that were believed only Messiah could do. The healing of a leper. The casting out of a demon that caused mutinous. You know why mutinous? Why somebody who is... The old King James word is dumb. Because the Pharisees were casting out demons. That's attested to when Jesus says, if I cast this out by the finger of God, then how do your people cast it out? They were casting out demons, but this is a unique situation. They had a form and a ritual. We do this, then we do this, and we do this. It involved asking the demon its name. How would you do that if the person can't speak? And they didn't know what to do. They put God in a box and they didn't know what to do if somebody was mute. But Jesus did. He said, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting and cast it right out. Surely when Messiah comes. Another one, a man born blind. They had never seen it done. They believed only Messiah could do it. Does anybody want to guess what the crowning coup de grace miracle that Jesus did was? 
raising someone from the dead after they had been dead four days. It had been taught, well, when Elijah raised somebody from the dead, when other people were raised from the dead, it's because the Spirit was actually lingering around the body. And that that happens for, oh, I don't know, let's see, how many days was it? It was for somewhere around three days. On the fourth day, then it's not possible anymore except for Messiah. This is why immediately after Jesus raises from the dead His friend Lazarus, the leaders in the temple said, hmm, we can no longer deny that this man has done an outstanding miracle. Let's kill him. He's not the Messiah we want. That was Lanyap. I couldn't help but tell you that. What I really wanted to read you starts in the 12th verse. Do you believe that this book is like a many-faceted jewel that if you turn it different ways in the sunlight it will reflect different beautiful things to you? A man greatly deceives himself when he thinks that he's received all there is to receive from God, draws up a doctrinal statement, and squares God into it. I want to tell you another thing that I just can't help but do. Every complex issue in the kingdom, every one. Why you're made to suffer why friends and family are praying and not having yet seen the results of their prayer, all of those things are difficult situations. Overly simplistic answers never help. The Hebrews learned to praise God for what they saw as contradictions. When they didn't understand the situation, they actually had a specific prayer for it. It was, Bless you, O Lord, that I do not yet know what this means, for I know that you... We'll reveal it. I want to encourage you when you face difficult things in your life, when you simply don't know, don't try to presume God's will. Don't leverage Him. Well, your word says as if you're going to argue with the Almighty. Praise Him that you don't yet understand and ask Him to reveal it to you. He delights in this. He delights in it. You are made to be joyful. And nothing robs a person's joy more than the conflict in a soul when you look at one Scripture and look at another and can't reconcile them and begin to doubt God. The devil does this on purpose. This is why he started in the beginning by saying, did God really say? And then he took a mixture of the things that God said and so befuddled the human race that we're all dying every day now as a result. I don't want to say amen to that, but we can all agree that we're all dying, right? And yet this Gospel is about the statement that says, Though I die, yet will I live. For some, very sudden, very dramatic. For others, over a long period of time. But it's all about the same thing. Though I die, yet will I live. I want to maintain something today. I want to suggest to you that that's not just about the resurrection of the dead in the future, but it's about the resurrection of me every day. Though I die, Yet am I going to live today. How about that? Amen? Y'all in verse 12? Y'all bored with me yet? Well, good. See, I love guests for that reason. Y'all haven't heard everything I have to say. That's wonderful. Verse 12, Then the priest said to one of the... I'm sorry. Then the priest is to take one of the male lambs and offer it as a guilt offering, along with the log of oil. He shall wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. He is to slaughter the lamb in the holy place where the sin offering and burnt offering are slaughtered. Like the sin offering, the guilt offering belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe 
of his right ear, to put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. The priest shall then take some of the log of oil, pour it on the palm of his own left hand, dip his right forefinger into the oil in his palm, and with his fingers sprinkle some of it before the Lord seven times. He goes on to say, the priest then does this to himself. How weird must that have looked? Can you imagine if when you walked in here today, each of you on your right ear, your right thumb, and your right big toe had blood? I love our God. He understands that we're visual learners. He paints pictures for us that are vivid and beautiful and not dry and intellectual. The right side of most human beings, except a special few of you that are very brilliant, left-handed people, the right side of most human beings is considered to be our strength. And what you find out is that our strength in the Bible actually causes us to sin. It's times of our own self-sufficiency, times of our pride, of our interdependence from God instead of dependence upon Him that have brought upon us the worst situations in our life. But we serve a God who is willing to take us in that setting and cleanse us. And on the strongest side of your ability to hear, your right side, He'll put His blood to cover over your previous sin. On the strongest side of your right hand, the thing which you have sinned with before and have the potential to do holy things with now, on your right thumb, He'll put His blood. Now, I don't want to get into the whole opposable thumbs thing because you all will think about that movie and laugh at me. But a man without a thumb is an awkward thing. I tried to chop mine off when I put this little board in this pulpit. And it was very awkward for a long time. Even using something simple like a zipper or a Ziploc baggie was very, very hard. Right before us where our eyes look every day on our great finger on our right hand would be His blood reminding us your strength must be covered in the blood of Jesus. You ever seen somebody walk without a big toe? It's pretty darn hard to do. Therapists call it your great toe. I, see, I have teachers in here today, multiple teachers and multiple therapists. That means I will not be writing on the board and I'm going to stay away from medical things from this point forward. But it's difficult to walk without that toe. What God is trying to tell us is on the side of us that possesses the most strength, He wants us to hear as filtered through His redemption. He wants us to work as filtered through His redemption. And He wants us to walk with Him as filtered through the knowledge of our redemption. God paves the way for us to be joyful in all situations. Knowing that everything that you have, all that you are, God's very anointing, His divine enablement for you to live is filtered through redemption allows for the possibility of a mistake that you can recover from. How do you have what you have? Because God has redeemed me. Then what happens if you soil your white garment today? Well, the God who redeemed me yesterday can redeem me again today. God is not the God of the last chance. He's the God of the 10,000th chance. He's the jailhouse religion God, and there is no other way to come to it. If you didn't understand that you were thoroughly bound up and enslaved and chained, then you don't know what it is to be saved yet. And He'll make sure that you get there. But He will set you free. Now, why am I reading to you about ears and toes and big toes? Nastiness, right? 
No, not at all. Watch this. Turn to Judges. Judges. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then the book of Judges. Who's the most famous judge in all of Israel? Samson. We're not going to read about him. <laughs> Who's the second most famous judge? Who? Who? Gideon. We're not going to read about Gideon either. Turn to Judges 1. The guy who we serve as our Lord and King's name is written in Hebrew up there. If you had to recognize it, it would be difficult for you because we're not used to reading Hebrew, right? It was not Jesus. And in the South, it was not Jesus. And in Greek, it's not Jesus. I was taught that. None of those things are right. The man's name was Yeshua. And in Jerusalem, they pronounced it with the A on the end. And in Galilee, they didn't. They pronounced it Yeshua. This is how somebody who is walking around in Jerusalem can look and go, dude, aren't those guys Galileans? Can anything good come from there? The same way if we're, we're from Georgia and we're in the north, somebody might go, aren't those guys right off of the uh, Hee Haw station? You know? <laughs> of course, that could go another way. His name was Yeshua. When you take Yeshua in Hebrew and you translate it from Hebrew to English, what you get is Joshua. When you translate it into Greek and then into English, what you get is Jesus. But it's the same word. It's the same word with a little different emphasis on syllables. Watch this. After the death of Joshua, whose name means Yahweh saves, just like Jesus named us, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight against for us against the Canaanites? Isn't this a situation we're all in? Jesus is no longer physically walking the earth with us. He has died, been resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And now what we're looking for are leaders and men and women who will fight the enemy of God with us. How? How do we do it? In what way? I love this. The Lord answered, Judah is to go first. So y'all shut your Bibles. We have our answer. Judah Benjamin Stevens will go and fight all of the evil for us. <laughs> Judah means praise. It's where we get the word Jews because the whole area by the Romans began to be called Judea and people from it were called Jews, those who praise. And it was actually a term of disgust, right? Because... The Romans thought them poor to worship one God and ignorant. Not much different than the world does today, right? So, Judah praise is to go first. Something that you should glean from this, something you should take from this, and in every battle that you face, every single battle, no matter whether it's financial, whether it's spiritual, whether it's in your physical body or in your workplace, praise must go first. Have you ever been so mad, so angry about something that you couldn't even listen to reason? Now, I know you haven't done that, but I've done that several times this week. I told you, I preach right, preach right out of my own weakness. And when I know that I'm in trouble is when my holy wife looks at me and says, you need to pray. And it's as if somebody dumped hot coals on top of my head, thinking like, 
I know that, but if I say anything, I become more guilty. Praise will pull you out of your situation. We need to learn to filter everything that we see through the eyes of the Word and find something to praise God in it. If you had been healed from leprosy and you bore on your right hand, on your right toe, and on your right ear blood that proved that you had been healed, how many situations could you face that would be worse than leprosy? What is leprosy? It's your very flesh riding away from your body. Don't we all suffer from some kinds of leprosy in a manner of speaking? I would argue that in a manner of speaking, we all do. But I refuse to let that which is rotting direct that which is eternal. So we have to look through the prism of the Word. And we have to send praise first in every situation. Nehemiah said, it is our strength. It makes you strong. More than that, Thessalonians said, be joyful occasionally. Be joyful when you're in church with the lovely ones. Not at all. It said, be joyful always because these men foresaw a day when you might lose your life for being a Christian. Joy is what will carry us through. So they want to know, how do we fight now that Jesus is not here walking with us? He said, you send praise first. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, you know what Simeon means? Hearing from God. Your ability to praise God and the rock that the church was built on, your ability to receive revelation from God will change any situation that you have. You must remember that when you ask God to tell you something, He is not your cosmic genie. He does not tell you simply what you want to hear. We live in a day where we have a bless me gospel. You know? A great big Santa Claus in the sky that gives us whatever we want. That's the gospel that people preach. But the gospel that comes to us is on blood-soaked pages. 50,000 Christians died every year under Marcus Aurelius in the year A.D. 140. 50,000. Did their families not pray? Of course they did. Did they not desire to escape lions? Of course they did. But we serve a God that will test you to see whether you shrink back from His will at the face of death. And the only ones worthy to wear a crown of life are the ones that won't. It is so easy to say we'll pass that test until we're tested. Praise God that our struggles every day give us a chance to learn to die to our own desires and take up His. This gives us practice every day so that we're not infants in Christ immediately thrown into an arena. I would even go so far as to say it's easy to give your life in a moment. It's much harder to give it over a long period of time, little bit by little bit. But that's what we're called to. The dying of our old nature, the putting off of our old nature, and the receiving of a new nature from Christ. Then the men of, the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. Praise goes with the ability to hear from God. I'm so mad I could spit. Why won't you speak to me, God? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Praise goes with the ability to hear from God. 
And when you're locked in a jail cell and his chains are rattling off of your hands and you can praise him is when he will shake the earth and open prison cells and speak. And even then, it may not be the first hour you sing. We serve the God who calls a patriarch a father of many nations 20 years before he decides to give him even one child. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites in gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. Hmm. It was there that they found Adonai, Bezek, and fought against him. Putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites, Adonai, Bezek, fled. Hold there. Look up to me. We pray sometimes at the beginning of our services, and I'm not a linguist. I butcher even the English language. But the little bit of Hebrew that I've been taught is their daily prayer, their Shema. And how do you remember how it begins? Shema, Ya Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Ehad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Do you know what the word for Lord was? Adonai. Adonai. This is the most frequent term used for the Lord. And the reason that it's the most frequent one is it means the owner and controller of Israel. The owner and controller of you, if you call Him Lord. It's also frequently used because the commandments teach us not to misuse the name of the Lord our God. Judah, third commandment, right? Am I right? Judah says yes, so we're good to go. Don't misuse it. And they were concerned, so they substitute the word Adonai for the Lord's name in almost every setting. What was this guy's name? Adonai. Now, our English translators, they changed this a little bit so that you could differentiate. Adonai is usually A-D-O-N-A-I. In this case, they removed an A so that you would know it's like Adonai, but it's not really Adonai. What we have is a false Lord here. Anybody want to take a stab at Bezek? Lightning. The false god of lightning is who they're fighting with. Israel goes out to fight against Canaanites, the enemies of God, and they encounter a special one. One who is the false god of lightning. Now, does that conjure up any images in your mind? Could that be the devil in your thoughts anyway? I could see a picture being painted there. Let's see why Adonai Bezek was unique in the Bible. Oh, it's that next line. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and cut off, caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, have picked up the scraps from under my table. What is a king? A king is someone who is supposed to be anointed to rule. He has a dominion. The word Israel means princes with God, kings with God. Paul says one time, oh, you're kings and without me? How I wish that you were kings already. Because we are destined to be kings. The twelve apostles were told they would rule on twelve thrones. Kings reign on thrones. There is a rain coming upon the earth where everybody who is submitted to the one king of kings, which makes you kings. He's our king, and we're kings under him. 
are opposed by someone. Kings of the Most High God. We're called to be kings. You have to master your own body, your own life, then your own household, and then the ministry that God gives you before He will assign you a portion of the earth to rule over. But we're called to be kings, and there is a false god of lightning out there. Seventy in Hebrew. You remember Peter suggests something to Jesus? How many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seventy? But he suggested something first. He said, seven times? Like that little assumptive close. Lord, surely seven would be enough. And Jesus said, seventy times seven. Seventy in Hebrew speaks of a complete number. It's like in English saying, a billion times. Or back in the 50s saying, a million times. Those numbers have to change because of inflation. In Jesus' day 2,000 years ago, it was only 70 times. How about that? He had cut off the thumbs and big toes of 70 kings. Why would this demonic king want to cut off thumbs and toes? Because that was the mark of our strength and our redemption in the Lord. This was what made us unique, having been leprous, but now standing cleansed. His desire was to remove that which God had redeemed in us. And what defeats Him? Praise and your ability to hear from God. Send Judah first. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. The devil's desire is to take you called to be a king and make you his foot-washing slave. Jesus lowered Himself to the point that the God of the universe came and washed the feet of men to teach us a different way of life than just somebody groveling with no strength under the table of a worldly carnal ruler. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought Him to Jerusalem and He died there. Where did Adonai Bezek die? You remind the devil of that every time he is whispering lies in your ear. My king was nailed to a cross and you thought you won. But he stepped on your head on the way out of the grave and now I stand. Though dying, yet will I live. Adonai Bezek has no hold on us any longer because he has no hold on our king and we're in his dominion. Could that bring you joy? In Luke 2.10, an angel appears to shepherds and he says something. He says, Hear this, shepherds! I pronounce to you a profound mystery of theological doctrine. I present before you the most perfect system of belief that has ever existed. None of those things. He said, Hear this, O shepherds. You are Methodist, you are Baptist, and you are Catholic. Here are your individual ways to approach God. No. He didn't do that. He said, I bring you good news of great joy. What is the mark of a Christian then? If you've received the good news that Adonai Bezek is defeated, that the devil who once enslaved you is now conquered, the good news shows up in our lives through great joy, which is our strength. We walk around in strength when we walk around with smiles on our faces. In Luke 24, 
Jesus has ascended into the heavens. And at a moment when Joshua, Jesus, is no longer there, it says they had great joy. They would need it. It would be severely tested. Turn with me to Acts 8.8. I'm going to have to hurry up. that surprise you? Acts 8. 8. Trying to make it easy on you. I lied. 8-1. On that day, great persecution broke out. What broke out? Great persecution. Now, on a biblical level, what would be great persecution? Great persecution would be when your friends at work don't want to talk to you. When somebody passed you by at your locker at school. Right? Great persecution is when your neighbors are mad too many people are parked out front. Right? No, none of those things qualify as great persecution. The people that this is written to had been skinned alive for the gospel. They lived under the earth for months at a time. They had watched their friends and family crucified, and they said great persecution broke out. Could we say then that it was great, real, tragic, circumstances, difficult? Well, then surely they must be defeated. They must be depressed. They're going to their physicians at this very moment and asking for medical help for their depression. I'm sure of it. They must be, right? That's not a stab at anybody who's doing that. If it helps you, do it 100% of the time. If it doesn't help you, then re-examine that situation. Okay? I'm all for taking Tylenol if it fixes the problem. But if you're taking it and it does not fix the, the problem, perhaps we're addressing the wrong problem. Those who scattered, verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the Word wherever they went. Great persecution is scattering them around the globe. And what are they doing? Preaching. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Don't you think that great persecution should cause great grief? Not in the body of Christ. Because every chance we get on the strongest side of our hearing, we're redeemed. On the strongest side of our works of our hands, we're redeemed. On the strongest side of our stride, we're redeemed. In any direction that we hear, any direction that we walk, any direction that we work, we are redeemed. That good news brings us great joy in every circumstance. Everyone. In fact, you might say a measure of how dead to your own desires you really are and alive to God's is how much it takes you to get depressed. That's not a way to build a big church, is it? I should hand you donuts, gift certificates, tell you you're all wonderful people and fan you and feed you grapes, right? But then what would happen to me? I'd go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. I would prefer to avoid that place. And what I preach to you are the very words that I need to hear every day. Because Adonai Bezek sometimes lies to me. He looks a little bit too much like God and he throws too many lightning bolts or might we say fiery darts 
in my way. And every once in a while, I get confused and I listen to Him instead of my risen Lord. And it shows up in my actions, and I don't like that very much. And I'm determined tomorrow to do better than I did today. And I believe that that's what makes me a disciple of Jesus, is that I'm determined tomorrow to do better than I did today. Do you share that same hope? I want people to look at my life and see a bird that is alive, flying through the open fields, carrying with him the testimony that another died, that he might live. I want people to go, wow, I didn't think it was possible that anything redeeming could come from that man's life and yet see something redeeming in it. There was great persecution and yet great joy. We could contrast that with something. Galatians 4.15, Paul's writing to the church that gotten into a kind of legalistic pursuit of Jesus. Now, that's not applicable to the church today at all, huh? None of us have ever followed rules instead of following the Spirit of God. We've never reduced God's Word to simply we do not do this, we do not do that. We're not like those people over there because we don't do this. We've never done that, have we? Oh, maybe we have. You know what Paul said to him? said the same thing that happens to everyone who substitutes the vibrant, living freedom and power of God for a set of rules. He said, what has happened to all of your joy? Oh, you look okay on the outside, but there's no strength on the inside of you. Friends, I don't know about you, but that is an easy place to fall into in Christ. Being defined by all of the things that you don't do. I don't watch that kind of movie. Now, this is not a... This is not my encouragement for you to go watch bad movies or say bad things or anything else. But I do want us to be defined for the right reasons as Christians. I'm going to pick on Cody for a second. He dressed like a Mormon today. He didn't mean to. It's his work uniform. White shirt, black pants, and black tie. He looks like a Mormon today. He's even got a bicycle out front. You know what, though? Cody is no Mormon. He looks like one on the outside at the moment, but Cody is no Mormon because the blood of Jesus has atoned for all of Cody's sins, not some. He has the real gospel of Jesus Christ, not another gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't get a revelation from a moron angel wearing special glasses under an oak tree. He's received this revelation from the throne of God in heaven. Oh, he looks like a Mormon today, but he's not a Mormon. How many people out there are there, though, that look like Christians because they dress right, they're in the right places, there are no obvious disqualifying things, and yet they're not Christians? I wonder if that number's higher than we might suspect. Could there be a few in this room? Possible but you don't have to stay there. You can change today. The first murderer in all of the Bible, the very first one, God did not walk up to him and say, I perceive through my godly powers that you are a killer. That's not what he said. He asked him two questions. Why are you angry? And why are you frowning? Two questions. When God examined mankind and saw a potential murderer, his first question, what he saw as a root cause analysis, was that there was anger instead of joy and a frown instead of a smile. How about that? 
Condemnation says you are a failure that cannot succeed. You should quit or die. But conviction says you are called to greatness and are capable of so much more than this. You can do it. Jesus is not looking for a way to disqualify us. He is not looking for a way to make you feel guilty and burdened. He's just the opposite. Peter was angry. He was wanting to protect Jesus in a garden. Luke 18, I'm sorry, John 18, Luke 22 record this event from two different angles. A young man named Malchus reaches out and takes hold of Jesus. How angry would that make you? This is your Lord. This is your friend. This man's never done anything wrong. And now Malchus is going to take him to a court that is going to kill him. What would you want to do? Peter pulls out a sword, snatches off his ear. Now, if I can cut off David's ear, what else might I have been able to do in that moment? Peter didn't want to kill him. That would have been sin. Jews don't murder. Peter was deliberate. He cut off his ear. You know why? Malchus was a servant to the high priest. And you could not be a high priest or serve as a high priest if you didn't have both ears, because their law said so. Antagonist Hyrcanus II in 40 B.C. was in a debate with someone. This is during that intertestament period. They both wanted to be high priests. Antagonist fixed the problem. He reached out, took a knife, and cut off his buddy's ear. He was now disqualified. There is something about a religious spirit that is always looking to disqualify everyone else as if it makes us more valid. Jesus was not like this. The servant of the high priest reach out, takes hold of Jesus. Peter hacks off his ear. Luke 22 says Jesus bent down and picked up that ear and put it back on. Jesus is not looking to disqualify you. He's not trying to show you how guilt-ridden you should be. He's trying to show you the way in which you can serve Him. Peter showed Malchus to be disqualified. Jesus took that and turned it into an opportunity for him to be qualified. You go read John 8, go read the rest of the Gospel, every story, and what you'll find is the same expression. The one that can do what no one else can do. The one that does all of the miracles that nobody else had ever been able to do is saying to the lowly, the broken and the contrite, I will qualify you. And the religious world is saying, no, you can't accept them. They're disqualified. That's not the God we serve. The God we serve is bringing us good news of great joy. We're going to read one more place. Exodus 17. Out of the dry, old, boring, dusty Old Testament. Because you all have this memorized. And after all, we don't want to enslave you to the law because that's a real temptation for American Christians, isn't it? To be enslaved to the Jewish law. How ridiculous. How absurd. If I teach you about the law, does that in some way keep you from following the Holy Spirit? I would say it encourages you to. It enlivens you. It's funny when men are threatened, their insecurities rise, and it makes us less than we were called to be. We're called to be kings. Don't let anybody take your thumbs and toes. In Exodus 17, we have a situation where waters are bitter and Moses heals the water. And it's a beautiful story, but no time to read it. So we'll start in the 8th verse. 
The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. <laughs> I've always thought this was interesting. Rephidim means the resting place. Isn't it always when you are just trying to catch up on some sleep? Isn't it always when you thought, look, I'm just so tired, I can't go on, I need to rest, that the devil shows up? In fact, I found the best safeguard in my life. The best opportunity that I have is to fill it with doing good things. The more that I do that, the less opportunity I have to be at rest and have long conversations with Amalek that ultimately steal my joy. The Amalekite. Amalekite means warlike. The only other rendering that I could find says valley dweller. <laughs> Does it get any clearer than that? Amalek comes when you are resting in a low place in life. Not high joy, you're in the valley. He's a valley dweller and he wants to wage war on you. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua... By the way, this is the first time in the book of Exodus the word Joshua appears. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God... Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, Yehoshua, all same word. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The Son of God appeared to destroy the devil's work. Joshua shows up here to destroy the enemy's work. First mention of him. First time. He's there to fight. Jesus will fight for you if you let him. He wants you to praise him. He wants you to hear from him. And he will fight your battles for you. Instead of taking up a sword, you take up a trumpet. Instead of taking up a sword, you take up some instrument of praise. You send Judah first. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. You men of God in here. You were chosen by God to fight the warlike people in the valley. Adonai Bezek was their leader. You don't get to fight him. You don't. Your war's against that, but you don't get to fight him. Who you see every day, the foot soldiers, are the Amalekites. You know your battle's not really against them. It's not against the flesh and blood before you. It's against their ruler in dark realms, but they're who you see every day. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went on top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Look at me, saints. Whenever Moses held up his hands, that's like a great big smile before God. Then they won. Whenever he became too tired to smile, the weird terrors and worries of this world drug him down, choked out his faith. He's frowning. The frown will never receive anything from God. It sheds the blessings off to the left and the right. The smile is like a great big funnel receiving all of the strength and blessing and power from God. As long as he held up his hands, you find out from this story that sometimes to be able to keep a smile on your face, you need something. You need Aaron and her, brothers in the Lord, a priestly calling and a member of the praise team to stand on your left and right and help you hold up the corners of your mouth. The cheapest facelift you'll ever give yourself is a smile and it will make you more attractive every time. God wants us to display our faith 
to the heavenly realms, our sense of trust in Him by facing horrible situations with great joy. This is why your house is the only one that doesn't sell right away. Hulls and the shoemakers are sitting next to each other. Both have experienced that exact same trial. One this side of it and the other the other side of it. And they both have to smile. They both have to face that. They both have to trust God. This is what displays in a dark world something that shines out like a star. Drive down 59 tomorrow, 45 today, whatever it is. Look around you. Count the number of smiles. If they are not high and they're smiling, (laughs) chances are they're Christians. I knocked on the door in this neighborhood to discuss a fairly serious matter yesterday and I went, whoa, that dude is lit as high as a kite. It wasn't worth discussing at that point. There are smiles for things that are not worthwhile. I'm talking about a joy that comes from some deeper, more sincere place. The bumper stickers that say life is terrific, people are wonderful, that's really never helped anyone because it's a lie on the car. It's a lie. The smile that we have says things around us are pretty dark, but it's not going to overcome me because I'm victorious. God told Moses to write down these events, and Moses gave God the name, You are my banner. You are that flag above my head that shows everyone around me it's going to be okay. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 says, We wage war, but not as the world does. We demolish arguments and pretensions. With weapons of righteousness in our right and left hand, we stand ready to take captive every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. This joy should fill us to the point where anything that comes in to attack it, we grab, we make it captive, and we cast it out because it's there for one reason, to enslave you. Don't dwell on it. We do fight but we don't fight like the world does. We fight with the smiles on our faces, the love and tenderness in our voices. Psalm 16 teaches the same principle. There's no time to read it. Let's close with Jude. One verse in Jude, the second to last verse in Jude from the second to the last book in the Bible. If you got to maps and concordances, you went too far, hang a left. Y'all there? Amen. Jude. We're going to start in the 24th verse. To Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all of the ages now and forevermore. Amen. The natural Israelis fight with a system called Krav Maga those of us who have been grafted into Israel by way of their spiritual blessing, fight by being joyful in every situation and praying continually. I encourage you this week, saints, wage warfare by the smiles on your faces. And the harder the persecution is, the more preaching, proclaiming your life should do. 
Y'all stand up and let's pray.